The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. We're going to read Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid. Until he sees his desire upon his enemies, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Okay, we're in Numbers chapter 14. It's verses 11 through 25. It's entitled, A Year for Each Day, Part 2. So here we go, starting in verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I have performed among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it, for by your might you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land, which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. 
While going through the book of Numbers in our Sunday sermons, we're also going through 1 Corinthians in our weekly Bible studies on Thursday nights. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks of the punishment of the Israelites as he says their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That is something that will actually first be hinted at in today's verses. Along with the Bible studies for those who are brave enough, we're going also through a daily verse-by-verse commentary on the book of Hebrews. There in Hebrews, it speaks of exactly, exactly what is referred to in today's verses as well. When reading the New Testament, the writers refer to these passages. The verses simply state what the Old Testament says as a matter of fact, but without any extra context for the reader to understand what is being referred to. And so, unless one either knows the Old Testament and what is being referred to, or unless the reader simply takes the statements at face value and under the assumption that there is no need to know more, then there's actually a void in understanding what is presented by the writers in the New That doesn't mean a void in understanding the theology presented, but rather a void in grasping how the Lord got us to the theology. That is why it's so wonderful to go through these Old Testament passages. Again and again, the person who understands Jesus' work from the New Testament can suddenly stop and say, Aha! I get it! I see why the Lord picked that story or chose that particular word. It really is marvelous to be able to tie it all together without any gaps in our knowledge, either from the new while reading the old or from the old while reading the new. Our text verse today comes from Psalm 95. It's verses 8 through 11. Today, actually 7 through 11. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The thing about this text verse is that it never says explicitly, They shall not enter my rest in the books of Moses, which David refers to in the psalm. That is something that David said under inspiration and which then looks forward to an amazingly complex set of verses in the book of Hebrews. And so knowing just the original account in Numbers and the explanation of it in Hebrews isn't really enough. One has to know what the Psalms say about the matter as well. Further, for the person who is stuck in the Torah, meaning the five books of Moses, unless they know what David said and what he means and what he says in the Psalm, then they are completely deficient in what is being portrayed in these numbers verses. And because of this, and as I say time and again during the Thursday night Bible studies, learning theology is hard work. It is mentally taxing, it is complicated, and it is easily misinterpreted by those who are not fully trained in the Word of God. Hence, we continue on today in the book of Numbers. In our passage, we will once again find pictures Yes, marvelous pictures of the work of Jesus Christ. Such great things are to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just two thoughts for you today. The first is, let the power of my Lord be great. It's verses 11 through 19. To put this passage into perspective, we need to remember what occurred before it. In chapter 13, the land of Canaan was spied out, and the report was brought back to the people. 
With the exception of Joshua and Caleb, the report was a negative one. This was passed on to the congregation who then complained to Moses and Aaron concerning the situation. They determined to select another leader and head back to Egypt. They also said to stone them with stones. It was at that time and in the rescuing hand of the Lord that we read the final words before this passage today. It said, Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. The glory has appeared, and that doesn't bode too well for the congregation. Verse 11, Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? What we are not told here is whether the voice of the Lord came out audibly for the people or if the appearing of the Lord before all the people prompted Moses to go in and commune with the Lord. Either way, the people would have been fully aware of the fact that the Lord appeared just when they were about to stone Moses and those with him. That alone should be clue enough that the Lord was displeased with the events. And so it is. The Lord's words to Moses are, Ad ana yana'atsuni ha'am hazeh. Until when does spurn me, the people, the this? The Lord introduces a new word into scripture with these words, na'atz. It means to spurn or to treat with contempt. As an exception to the usual meaning, in Ecclesiastes, it is used to describe the blooming of the almond tree. And so one can almost get a sense that such spurning is something that blooms forth in abundance. The people's rejection of the Lord has literally flourished in his presence. And his question is, how long will this continue? Unfortunately, the question remains unanswered 3,500 years later. But he proceeds. Verse 11 continues, and how long will they not believe me? They ad ana lo ya'aminu bi. And until when not will they believe me? The words complement and build upon the previous words. To not believe the Lord is to spurn him. The concept is seen throughout scripture. To believe the Lord is pleasing to him and to not believe him is repugnant to him because it is a rejection of him. To believe the Lord is worthy of reward. To not believe him is worthy of punishment. To state that the Lord causes a person to believe or to place the blame upon the Lord for unbelief is a doctrine wholly unknown to Scripture. Such Calvinistic thinking is a cop-out which denies the fundamental truth that we are accountable for our actions, including our beliefs, before the Lord. In the case of Israel, they were all the more culpable for their disbelief. They had actual, visible, and verbal proofs from the Lord. Verse 11 going on, With all the signs which I have performed among them. Moses had come to Egypt and spoken to the elders of Israel. Eventually, the people had been alerted to what he was called to do, and that it was the Lord who would work out this calling. They had been told in advance of the coming plagues, including the final great plague. They had observed the Passover and had been drummed out of Egypt. They came to the Red Sea. They had seen the arm of the Lord accomplish his salvation. They had the pillar of cloud and fire with them. They had defeated Amalek. They had been given quail when promised. They were given manna to sustain them. On and on and on, the people had been told in advance what would occur, and then it came about. And yet, with a successive line of proofs that the Lord would deliver on his word, they failed to believe him. When he had spoken out his words to them, they failed to take him at his word. It is the sin of unbelief. In Hebrews 3 verse 19, it is explicitly stated that what will come upon them in the verses ahead is solely based on unbelief. 
The spurning of the Lord is based on their failure to simply believe him. Surprisingly, this doesn't mean that they didn't believe in him. It was that they simply didn't believe him, meaning his word, despite who he is. Israel today, and indeed much of the Christian world, believes in God, even in the God of the Bible. But they do not believe him, meaning in his word. The disconnect between the two is actually a fatal mistake. For Israel in the wilderness, it was a temporal mistake, which would result in temporal punishment of some sort. Verse 12, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. Here we have a thought reflective of that spoken by the Lord in Exodus 32. At the time of the incident with the golden calf, because of the people's actions, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. The difference here is that the pronouncement of the Lord is considerably stronger than before. First, he says that he will strike them ba the burr, or with the pestilence. It is one of the curses promised upon the people right in Leviticus 26. No sooner had they received the words of warning than the Lord is already threatening to come against them as he promised. And they had not even yet entered into the land of Canaan. And so great is the Lord's wrath at this point that he continues with ve'orishenu, or and disinherit them. Whatever was promised as their lot and inheritance, including Canaan itself, is threatened to be removed from their future. This is, in actuality, exactly what they had already threatened to do on their own, isn't it? In selecting a leader to take them back to Egypt, they had, in essence, disinherited themselves. The Lord is, in principle, simply agreeing to their desires. With this threat standing, he then makes a promise to faithful Moses. Verse 12 continues, And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Again, the words are reflective of Exodus 32, but they are more strongly formed now than before. He said there, and I will make of you a great nation. Before, he was promised to be a great nation. Now, using those same words, but with addition, he has promised to be a nation greater and mightier than Israel. Moses, being the leader of the people, knew their size. He knew what they were now. He also knew what they were to become based on the Lord's promises to them. That would be less than what is now offered to Moses. The first words without the addition of becoming mightier than Israel are almost an exact repeat of the words spoken to Abraham over 430 years earlier. There the Lord said to him, and I will make you a great nation. The Lord is speaking these words as a test of Moses just as he did at the incident with the golden calf, but he is making the promise greater than at that time. What is the measure of the love of Moses for his people? What is the scope of his faithfulness to his duties? Is his desire for recognition and fame greater than his allegiance to his calling? And is it his honor or the Lord's which will most motivate him? Here, he is seen as a type of Christ who is tempted by the devil with greatness, by bypassing the hard work. Moses is not being tempted, but he is being tested. He has faced the difficulties of leadership, and he is now being offered a way out of them at the expense of the people he leads. Jesus was offered the same. If he took the devil's offer, mankind would have been doomed, just as Israel's being offered up for destruction and disinheritance now. The Lord's words of promised 
pestilence and disinheritance are merely an exercise in revealing the character of Moses. This is what occurred with Jacob when the Lord wrestled with him in Genesis chapter 32. Here's what it said back then. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. The Lord tested Jacob, not for the Lord's learning, but for Jacob's. Once again, and for a second time, the same thing is occurring with Moses. The Lord already knows what Moses will do, but he still needs Moses to know this as well. And there's a reason for it, which will be seen later in the chapter. For now, Moses responds, verse 13, And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it, for by your might you brought these people up from among them. Albert Barnes notes the unique structure of Moses' coming words. It is worth understanding this before we actually look at them. He says, The syntax of these verses is singularly broken. As did Paul when deeply moved, so Moses presses his arguments one on the other without pausing to ascertain the grammatical finish of his expressions. He speaks here as if in momentary apprehension of an outbreak of God's wrath, unless he could perhaps arrest it by crowding in every topic of deprecation and intercession that he could mention on the instant. Moses' words of verses 13 through 19 are words of intercession. They are similar to what he spoke after the incident of the golden calf, but they are deeper and more heartfelt than even then. The motive behind them remains the same as before, even if it is expanded on here. And so he begins by referring to the Egyptians. He could have started with any thought that came to his mind. One of a million things could have prompted him to speak, and yet he begins with where Israel came from, meaning being among Egypt. Egypt, as we have seen, is, in type and picture, the place that we as believers have left, meaning our old life of bondage to sin. The Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and he brought us up from our bondage to sin. In both, it was by, as Moses says, your might. What is so important about this that Moses begins with it? And what is so important about it that the Lord ensures that it is recorded here? Moses next explains with verse 14, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. The inhabitants of this land are not merely speaking of where they are in Sinai, meaning the Arabians and others, nor merely of Canaan, but those surrounding Canaan as well. They are referred to in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15 and include Philistia, Edom, and Moab. In his Song of Victory, Moses had said these words, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, 
till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. It appears that this song of victory is exactly what is on his mind as he now appeals to the Lord. It was about a year earlier that the song had been sung, and now Moses is recalling them before the Lord. Already the people had heard. They knew it had taken place, and there was doubt that those events would lead to ultimate victory. And so Moses speaks further. Verse 14 continues. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. In these words is a rather unique expression. Rather than face to face, as it's translated here, the Hebrew reads eye to eye. The proximity of the Lord to the people is so close as he is among them that it is as if they can see one another's pupils. Further, Moses describes the three aspects of his visible presence. One, the cloud which stood above them, shading them and protecting them. Two, the pillar of cloud that went before them by day, showing all that he was Israel's head. And three, the pillar of fire that went before them by night, lighting the way and providing illumination. The nations had heard of these things and could only watch in awe at the marvel of him being among Israel. But what if that changed? Moses goes on, verse 15, Now if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, Moses is not asking for judgment to be withheld. He understands that it must come, however the Lord determines. But in order to ensure that the honor of the Lord in the sight of the nations is maintained, he notes that if they are killed as one man, it will bear negative consequences. The exact opposite is true concerning what happened when Jerusalem was surrounded by the army of the king of Assyria at the time of King Hezekiah. He pleaded with the Lord for rescue, stating, Now therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. And the Lord, for the sake of his name, responded to Hezekiah's pleas. The account says, And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord <laughs> went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. They were destroyed as one man, and the Lord was glorified. Moses understood that such a display of power could only reflect negatively upon the name of the Lord should it be brought against his own redeemed people. As he says, verse 16, because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. Of the scholars that I read, they are all in agreement that Moses is implying that the nations would think that the Lord simply was not strong enough to continue the job he had begun and sworn to complete. He was either exhausted from his great acts or he knew that the power which Israel was to face could not be overcome and so he killed them. I disagree. It isn't because the Lord isn't powerful enough to accomplish his words, but because the people were uncontrollable. In Genesis 6, the people of the world had become completely uncontrollable, and the Lord destroyed all but eight. At the Tower of Babel, the people did not do what the Lord had instructed. Instead of spreading out, they united as one, and thus the Lord had to divide their tongues. At the incident of the golden calf, it says, Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, 
When the people of the Lord are uncontrollable, it is the Lord who is seen as incapable of accomplishing his word. And this is exactly what the people of the world think of the Lord when they see Christians who are unrestrained. In bringing discredit upon themselves, they actually bring discredit upon the Lord. It is his honor which is called into question by the actions of his people. Moses knew that if he killed the people as one man, the nations would say the Lord couldn't even control his own people. How then can he accomplish anything beyond what he promised them? Consider it. When a well-known evangelist is found to be completely unrestrained, the people who see him will inevitably question the promises of the Lord. We as a species look from the bottom up, not from the top down. The Lord already knew this, but he is drawing this out from Moses for his learning and for our instruction. The Lord speaks out this same thought in Isaiah 48. Here's what he says. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger. And for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. Verse 17. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great. And now let be great, I pray, the power of Adonai. Moses uses a verb in the form of a declarative. Let be great, the power of Adonai. His appeal now is not based on what he has said, but on what he will next say. What is it that will most marvelously display the power of Jehovah? Moses will recount the Lord's own words. Verse 17 continues, just as you have spoken, saying, in Exodus 34, Moses went up Mount Sinai a second time, carrying the tablets of stone. There on the mountain, it said these words, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord God, the Lord God, merciful and gracious long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses reaches back to his time there, and he now substantially repeats the Lord's own proclamation of himself. Here's what he says, verse 18, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Astonishingly, Moses sees the power of the Lord most fully demonstrated in his mercy and forgiveness. This is what the Lord had declared concerning himself when he had most fully revealed who he is. Moses grasped onto this, knowing that the Lord is unchangeable in his being, and he appeals to that truth now. Moses is considered Israel's great lawgiver. A law demands justice leading to punishment for transgression. But Moses sees the strength of the Lord in withholding that and in the granting of mercy. Does that not sound like God working in Christ? The greatest demonstration of all of God's power, all of it, is found in the giving of his son for sinful man. 
it is the very heart of the gospel, and the gospel is the very heart and purpose of all scripture in regards to salvation. Paul says as much in Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The law and its penalties cannot compare to the mercies of the Lord, and the dispensation of law is but a dark moment in redemptive history as it led to the gloriously revealed light of the dispensation of grace. Moses, understanding this precept above all else, then speaks out his petition to the Lord. Verse 19, pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy. How can you demonstrate your greatness, O Adonai? You can do so through pardon. In Exodus 34, verse 9, just after the Lord proclaimed his name, Moses asked for salach, or pardon. It was the first of 47 times that the term is used. It was next seen 10 times in Leviticus concerning the sacrificial system of law in the granting of pardon for offenses. All of those sacrifices pointed to what? To Jesus and to what he would do on the cross of Calvary. Throughout the rest of its uses, it is always ascribed to the pardon of the Lord. Moses had seen the Lord's compassion in his spoken word before, and he appealed to it then. As the word of the Lord is the revelation of himself, Moses knew that he is, by nature, compassionate. And so, as he petitioned the Lord for mercy in the instance of the golden calf, he again asks for it now. It is that which he knows the Lord possesses in unlimited abundance. Verse 19 continues, Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. From Egypt, even until now, is all-inclusive. The people were rebellious even before they set out after the Passover. They called into question the Lord's goodness at every stop they made. They continued to doubt him throughout their time at Sinai, and there was no reason to assume that the attitude should suddenly change on their trek to Canaan. Understanding this, pardon of their offenses is the only option apart from showing that he is simply incapable of restraining Israel any more than he is incapable of restraining the world at large. That is, apart from simply destroying them all. Free will in man is on prominent display in these verses, and it is the free will displayed through the receiving of pardon which is most radiantly highlighted. We see the cross of Jesus Christ in every single word that we're looking at right now. Moses got this, and in his getting, the Lord has once again revealed who he really is and what he really will continue to do as history progresses. He will magnify his own glory through the pardon of his people. That is seen in the Lord's response coming up in just a moment after a short poetic break. The Lord... The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, mercy so spacious, his forgiveness to us is surely the proof. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but the guilty he will not clear, they will see a bad end. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. This is the warning which his word to us does send. But his word also shows us where his pardon to find in the giving of Christ, he has granted it to us. Be sober in thought and of a reasonable mind. Search out his goodness in the face of Jesus. Our second thought today is corporate pardon, individual punishment. It's verses 20 through 25. Verse 20. 
Then the Lord said, I have pardoned. Salachti kibarecha. I have pardoned. As Moses has petitioned, so the Lord has granted. Pardon here then is inclusive of Moses' own words. In verse 15, Moses said, now if you kill these people as one man. The pardon then is not asking for punishment to not be inflicted on them, but that they would not be destroyed all at once. That would have two effects. First, it would immediately destroy the people, but secondly, it would destroy the seed of the people. Moses wanted neither. As he says, verse 20 continues, according to your word. Moses spoke and the Lord granted. The lesson for was for Moses to understand the Lord more fully. But Moses' lesson is our lesson. The Lord pardons according to his nature, and that is the greatest display of his greatness. However, the Lord does this so that he will be glorified. Verse 21, but truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. There is an and missing in this translation, unfortunately. It says, but truly, as I live, and shall be filled with glory of Jehovah, all the earth. In other words, what he will next say concerning the punishment of the people is actually a point upon which the glory of the Lord fills the earth. Well, how can that be? First, in not immediately exterminating them as they deserve, the Lord's glory is made manifest. Secondly, by allowing their seed to continue, the Lord's glory is made manifest as is seen throughout all of the rest of Scripture and especially in the coming of Christ through them. And thirdly, what is this account picturing? The people have been promised rest in Canaan. They rejected the Lord and they were denied that rest. Instead, they will wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Each of these things has been seen in Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ. If you're not going through the Hebrew studies, you're not understanding the fullness of what is being said here in these verses. It is an astonishing study and you will understand deep theology when you get done with it. In type and picture and step by step, we have been led to this point when they rejected Christ, the curse of the covenant came upon Israel. The curses of Leviticus 26 have been played out in them for 2,000 years. And yet, the glory of the Lord is revealed in His keeping His covenant to them. By keeping them alive, meaning as a people, and now as calling them back to the land of Israel, just as it says in Ezekiel chapter 36, as his word said that he would do, the glory of the Lord has literally filled all of the earth. They were scattered every single place that man lives on this planet. If you go to China, there will be a synagogue with five Hebrews there. If you go to the north part of Alaska, there will be a synagogue where there are two Hebrews there. You go down to Peru or Argentina or any part of this planet, and there are Jews that were scattered to those locations. And that is being fulfilled in the words of Moses right now. They were kept as a people in their dispersion, and they have been regathered from every point where they were scattered. This, this is what is being pictured since their departure from Sinai, and it will continue until the crossing of the Jordan in Joshua chapter 4. This is what the book of Hebrews so meticulously details concerning the rest offered to the people of Israel. It is in Christ that they will find their rest, not entering Canaan, their promised rest. 
is pictured in their not coming to Christ, their true promised rest. Verse 22, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, the people saw the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai. They saw it in his other visible manifestations of himself, and they saw it in the things that he accomplished. They also saw the signs of the Lord, both in Egypt and in the wilderness. The words here are speaking of what Jehovah did for and among Israel, but they anticipate what Christ would do for and among Israel. The same words are used when speaking of Israel's interactions with Christ. The people are said to have seen his glory. That's John 1.14. They also saw his signs while living in their own Egypt, their own bondage to sin, and in the wilderness of their lives apart from Christ. Both are spoken of in John chapter 12 with these words. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Think of what's happening in Numbers. Think of what happened with Christ. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. In Israel under Jehovah and in Israel when Christ was among them, they failed to heed. But there is more. Verse 22 continues, And have put me to the test now these ten times, and have not heeded my voice. The term ten times is a Hebrew idiom. It means various times and often. Ten is used in this way in both testaments of the Bible. It is a certain number given for an uncertain. It signifies a completeness of an entire round of a given subject. Jesus uses it, for example, in Revelation chapter 2, where the saints are said to be tested for ten days. The people continuously tested the Lord, and they failed to heed his voice. It is, again, reflective of the time of Christ's coming. In Deuteronomy, the Lord said this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I will command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. The Gospels confirm the continuous testing of Christ by the people, and they're failing to heed his voice. Jehovah warned, Christ was rejected. The people did not enter into God's rest, typified by Canaan and realized in the salvation he provides as his next scene. Verse 23, they shall certainly not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. The punishment is named. Those who naats or rejected the Lord, those who saw his glory and those who failed to heed his voice were excluded from entry into the land of promise, meaning the rest of the Lord as described by the psalmist. The same punishment came upon Israel again at the time of Jesus Christ. Those who rejected him and those who failed to heed his voice were excluded from the true rest which is found in him. In scripture, one must be able to discern the larger pictures. Israel is a corporate body to whom everlasting promises are made. God will never take away the salvation of Israel. However, individually, they are not all saved. Individual Christians are, like Israel, in that everlasting promises are made to them. God will never take away the salvation of an individual. 
but only those individuals who come to Christ are saved. This is pictured in his next words to Moses. Verse 24, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him. Though Joshua will enter Canaan, the Lord singles out Caleb, the dog, who is of Gentile descent. He is specifically noted as having a different spirit. He's excluded from the punishment levied upon Israel, showing that it is faith in the Lord and his promises which secure salvation. Verse 24 continues, and has followed me fully. The Hebrew says, and has fully followed after me. Caleb pursued the Lord and the Lord's ways step by step in faith. Think of a faithful dog following its master, right? He's being singled out for this reason. He simply trusted the Lord's promise and defended his position by saying, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb is singled out because he fits the typology of who would come during the Gentile-led church age. It is those who Jews considered dogs, meaning Gentiles, that would inherit the lead role in this dispensation. While Israel was under punishment for not heeding the Lord, Caleb obtained the promise. Verse 24 continues, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. Caleb is promised entry into Canaan. Christians are promised entrance into heaven. The Hebrew reads, and his seed shall inherit it. Caleb is given as a type of Abraham here. Abraham was given an incredible promise, but by simple faith, God counted it to him for righteousness. From there, those who follow Abraham in faith are counted as his seed. The same thought is given here in Caleb. Those who are his seed will inherit the land. It must be remembered that Caleb also remained in the wilderness for 40 years, but his time was one of promise leading to entry into Canaan. Individuals were cursed leading to death. Understanding the typology leads to understanding the times in which we live. We are in a wilderness and we are seemingly wandering aimlessly, all of us, but some bear the promise and some do not. For those who do, our time here is simply in anticipation of entering what God promised since the fall of man. Caleb possesses that promise. All who trust in Christ do so as well. I say the same closing of each sermon every Sunday, and that is because those words reflect this truth found right here in the book of Numbers. Verse 25, now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow, turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Though seemingly misplaced, the words here are given in anticipation of the final seven verses of the chapter. There, a battle between disobedient Israel and the Amalekites and the Canaanites will take place. At this time, the narrative anticipates that, telling the people that these adversaries are abiding in the valley. With the Lord, they could be easily defeated. Without him, their own defeat was certain. Because of this, the people are instructed to turn away from them by the way of the Red Sea. As there are fingers of the Red Sea on both sides of Sinai, it could mean either direction. If west is meant, it would then be ironic that they were heading in the general direction they had wanted to go when they rebelled. But they will rebel against that and turn to fight those enemies once again in disobedience to the Lord. Another hint of irony is found in what occurred after the rebellion of Israel with the golden calf and what occurs after this rebellion of Israel now. After the incident of the calf, Moses went up Mount Sinai and asked for pardon for the people. 
At that time, he spent 40 days on the mountain a second time. That's recorded in Deuteronomy 9, verse 18. Now, after the incident of rejecting entry into Canaan, Moses again petitions for pardon for Israel, and they will spend a full 40 years in the wilderness. In both, they are periods of grace leading to revival and renewal. For Moses' time, it was a period of grace leading to a renewal of the covenant. For Israel, it is a period of grace leading to renewal in the land of promise. In both, they picture the work of Christ on Israel's behalf, despite Israel's disobedience. Christ rose, and 40 days later, he ascended. This was followed by the confirmation of the covenant, the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. But Israel rejected that. They went into an extended time of punishment, but that is promised to lead to a time of revival and renewal. During that time, the covenant promises belong to any who will come to Christ by faith. But it is a time of being led by the Gentile church. The patterns laid down here in Numbers are literally, literally being lived out in our lifetime. At some point, the church is going to be removed and the focus will be back on Israel as the Lord completes his plans for them and fulfills his promises to them. Until that time, we are given the lesson to follow after the Lord, just as Caleb is said to have done. We are to have a different spirit in us, one of faith in the promises of the Lord. If we are willing to, by faith, put our trust in the promises of God found in Christ, we will be considered in the same light as Caleb was here in the book of Numbers. It all centers on obedience to the Lord, and that all centers on faith in Him and in His Word. And how do we appropriate that? By calling on Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, people believe in the God of the Bible. They believe even in the Christian God of the Bible, right? But they don't believe his word. And that is a disconnect which cannot exist logically. You can be saved and not believe in God's word. You can be saved and not believe in uh, creation rather than evolution because you haven't been instructed on those things. But to then later say, I'm saved by God, but I disagree with creation and I believe in evolution, that shows a lack of faith. You're already saved. You're not going to lose your salvation, but you will lose rewards for that because the word of God is a revelation of himself. And that is what Moses did today. He grasped on to the Lord's own words and he substantially repeated them to the Lord. I know what you're doing. You're testing me and I'm going to tell you what needs to happen because you already know this, but I needed to find this out. It was a test for Moses. And so he repeated that. He understood that the Lord's power is found in mercy and in forgiveness. But that must be chosen by us. It must be chosen by us. And that's pictured here. And so we come to the end of our sermon today and we are faced with a choice. Every person on this planet, will I receive the pardon of God found in Jesus Christ in the cross? He's the one that went to the cross. Now think of it. God came out of eternity. He created every single thing in this universe, but he was willing to come out of eternity and unite with his own creation in the form of a man in order to remove the sin of man. If that doesn't show you the value of a human being to God, I don't know what else could. We had a talk in the projects yesterday with somebody that was a know-it-all, all about every type of theology. He didn't want to hear anything from anybody. He just wanted to stand there and speak, and eventually we all just walked away from him. That's so sad because God has demonstrated his love in the giving of Jesus Christ. He did it and he didn't have to do it. He could have done what he did at the flood of Noah and destroyed the whole earth plus Noah and his family. But he didn't. He saved eight through the water. And he could have done it to Israel here, but he didn't. 
He gave Moses a lesson that is now recorded for us to understand the lesson, which is then recorded for Israel to understand that they have missed the ball in Jesus Christ. Do you know what it says in the last chapter of the book of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi? Let me read it to you. The last chapter. Here's what it says. I've turned too far. It's a little book. Here it is. Okay. It says, Malachi chapter 4. 4 verse 4. Remember the law of Moses. This is the Lord speaking to the people of Israel. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Why would he tell them that if he's sending his son? Remember the law of Moses. It's because what I already read you from this sermon. I will send a prophet like you. Remember the law of Moses does not mean to remember the law of Moses and adhere to every precept that you can never fulfill. It means remember what the law of Moses says. Somebody is coming and his forerunner is mentioned right down here. Let me read you to the end of the book. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, speaking of John the Baptist, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Remember the law of Moses means remember what the law of Moses says. Jesus is coming, and if you don't pay heed, I will strike the land with a curse. And they have been under curse for 2,000 years. How sad it is. And any one of us that doesn't call on Jesus Christ is under that same curse. Eternal separation from God the Father. Israel collectively will never be disowned by God. Jewish people individually and Gentiles individually will be. But those who come to Christ will never be disowned by God. He has given his assurance to you in the giving of his son. Please call on Jesus today. Our closing verse comes from Hebrews 3. It's verses 16 through 19. For who, having heard, rebelled, speaking of Israel, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry? Forty years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? Caleb obeyed. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Hebrews 4, 3. Now we who believe do enter that rest. It's not speaking of the land of Canaan. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. When you believe in him, you've entered your rest. You no longer need to have a Sabbath day because he is our Sabbath rest. Next week is Numbers 14, 26 through 45. The time in the wilderness seemed to go on and on and on endlessly. It's entitled A Year for a Day. Part three. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 27th number sermon. Now, before we have our poem, I want to ask you a question because I went through this. This isn't that old. We're in 1 Corinthians 3. We finished 3.13 this week in the uh, Bible study. So 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 isn't that old. It was only a few weeks ago, maybe a month at the most, I would think. Okay, I'm going to read you that. And then I want you to tell me if you remember what I said that is speaking of, because we have to keep verses in context. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. What is that speaking of? 
It is not speaking of heaven. That is the most misquoted verse along with Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged and no man knows the day and the hour. Those are all misquoted. They're taken out of context. It is speaking of what God did in Jesus Christ in sending his son. It's a past lesson, not a future lesson. And that is what is pictured right here in our sermon today. You all get wet noodles for the week. Those who attend the classes and those who don't get two for not attending. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert wandering aimlessly, right? That's what we are looking at today. That's what's being promised. But the Lord is there carefully leading you to the land of promise. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay, our poem, short one and we'll be done a year for each day. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I have promised among them, how can they act so stubbornly? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them too. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So I shall do. And Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it. So they will understand for by your might, you brought these people up from among them and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face your glorious sight and your cloud stands above them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak saying words that will bring disgrace to your name. Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land as he did address, which he swore to give them. Therefore, he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great. Just as you have spoken, saying, as you did do, the Lord is long suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression too. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers as he swore to do on the children to the third and fourth generation. So it shall be the judgment from you. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now, may it still be. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness have put me to test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice and my solemn address, they certainly shall not see the land, not even a little bit of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. So shall it be. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, surely your glory is throughout all the earth. 
in having protected a people who are so disobedient and so undeserving. And even more than that, your glory extends to the Gentiles who are just as undeserving, just as disobedient, and just as unfaithful. And yet you have pardoned because of your love for the people you have created, the work of your hands. You've sent your son. He's given his life. He's fulfilled the law. He's come out from the grave. He has prevailed over death. And he offers that to us. How great you are. How great is the power of Adonai that you have done these things for us. Lord God, hallelujah. Hallelujah that you have done these things. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we do so in the beautiful and exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen.